Good morning and thanks for joining me for today's FS Club update on EU financial services legislation and associated initiatives. We kicked off our first webinar of the year back in January with Dr David Doyle, providing us with his hotly anticipated update on the EU financial services regulatory agenda. So as we reach the end of the six months, it's timely to chat with Dr Doyle again and find out how regulatory developments in the financial services space are working in practice. I'm particularly intrigued to get David's insights into the creation of the EU AML Authority, which oversees high-risk entities and revisions to the EU Payment Service Directive, the Digital Operational Resilience Act, and the recently announced EC Retail Investment Package. David is known across Europe as a leading expert on EU financial services regulation. A former diplomat with over 20 years' experience in mainland Europe, David now acts as an EU policy advisor. He is a board member and secretary to the Financial Services Working Party of the Joint MEP EU Industry Advocacy Body at the European Parliament and holds a seat on the board of directors at the Genesis Initiative at Westminster that promotes entrepreneurship and SME policy. Now, before I hand over to David, uh, the usual brief housekeeping points from me. If we haven't met yet virtually or in person, I'm Charlotte Dobrashley and I manage the FS Club here at CN. I'd like to warmly acknowledge our very generous sponsors who enable us to bring you a wide-ranging, thought-provoking um, content across finance, technology and economics. And as usual, the slides are publicly available on our website and in the chat box. We'll record the session and it will be available to watch on our website within 48 hours. And as usual, the Q&A session will be for about 20 minutes after David's presentation. So please use the GoToWebinar chat facility to send your questions in to me early and then I'll feed them into the conversation. Now, without further ado, it's my pleasure to hand over you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte, and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, well, I start the session with some reassuringly good news, at least for those of us who still harbour ambitions to uh, restore uh, unfettered access for financial services uh, in these islands to, towards the single market. Uh, this week, on the 27th of June, uh, the United Kingdom and the EU signed the long-delayed post-Brexit cooperation pact on financial services, better known as the Memorandum of Understanding on Regulatory Cooperation, which was part of the UK's deal uh, in exiting the European Union, but was put on ice because of clashes with Brussels over trading arrangements in Northern Ireland, which has now happily since been resolved through the Windsor Agreement. So the first meeting under, uh, uh, foreseen under this memorandum of understanding between the UK and the EU authorities is due sometimes this autumn, allowing both sides to have a very collegial exchange of views about regulatory changes, international developments, risks to markets, and the avoidance uh, of any regulatory arbitrage. So an important turning point. Uh, a key point of this um, memorandum was indeed the setting up of this forum, which would meet, I think, at least twice a year, as it does, by the way, with the US and the EU authorities. The deal, which um, went into only four pages in terms of the Memorandum of Understanding, does pledge both sides to work together in terms of rulemaking, uh, uh, which I have to confess remains rather thin on the ground insofar as the 
controversial uh, equivalency arrangements are concerned. There is still a concern, a lingering concern, that for any banks um, of a non-EU uh, nature, uh, EU member nature, they still need to set up a branch or a subsidiary going forward. And under MIFID, of course, there are further restrictions. Now, the other good bit, good bit of news was actually yesterday. Uh, at the closing of the trilogue um, discussions surrounding the third version of EMIR, the clearing of derivatives, uh, the rapporteur, Polish professor Hubner, uh, agreed to um, relaxing the rules in terms of access by EU counterparties to clearing uh, euro-denominated uh, derivatives uh, in the city of London. Uh, it was formally seen uh, that the um, uh, UK clearinghouses, or indeed all clearinghouses based outside of the EU, would have to set up an active account in some uh, of the uh, EU member states in order to be able to clear uh, derivatives uh, going forward. This has now been put back, and the focus of the EMIR 3 uh, orthodoxy now going forward in its final stages is to allow a little bit more time uh, for all parties to continue uh, to do two things. One, to be able to allow uh, EU counterparties to clear in the City of London, even beyond the end of June 2025. But at the same time, helping uh, and assisting and facilitating uh, the creation of um, European Union uh, CCPs with the necessary liquidity, institutional capacity, uh, and also expanding the list of products that can be cleared uh, through uh, derivatives. So I think in general, uh, pretty good news. I mean, it has to be said that the UK and the EU do have a pretty strong foothold um, and footprint in terms of financial services exchanges. When you think about it, London represents 84% of all derivatives trading. Over 90% of all derivatives clearing in euro-denominated derivatives, uh, the, the, the bulk of the 90 trillion euro uh, derivatives market is largely cleared through, through London. 82% of all um, FX trades and 42% of all assets under management. So you can understand why both sides see uh, the virtues in coming together, signing the memorandum of understanding and embarking on this uh, hopefully constructive dialogue going forward. The challenge, of course, for the EU um, is that the EU, since 2006, uh, has seen its share of global financial transactions uh, actually decline from something like 30% to 13% of global financial transactions, whereas Asia now represents 40% of the global financial transactions are currently undertaken, and it's growing much, much more quickly. Uh, for, for, uh, for the non-EU member states, clearly uh, the key issue going forward will be the equivalency arrangements that allow uh, notably the UK banks, investment firms, access to the single market going forward. But having said that, there are a number of other parallel activities and uh, pieces of legislation going through uh, the EU at the moment. Most of these have already been approved. Most have implications, some good, some bad, in relation to 
access by non-EU member states. Take an example, of course, being the uh, DORA um, piece of legislation, uh, which is uh, now uh, being uh, finalized. It will be coming into place in 2026. But what this is doing, it's incorporating a, a massive vulnerability factor that was recognized by the ECB, by ESMA, by the FSB going back to 2008 of the financial crisis, that too many banks and investment firms, pension funds, uh, insurers, reinsurers were outsourcing massively their ICT activities to third-party uh, ICT providers, in some cases not actually based in the same country, uh, and accentuating the vulnerability factor, of course, was that many of these third-party ICT providers were based in non-EU member states. So this piece of legislation is an all-encompassing, probably one of the very, very few uh, regions in the world that has such a comprehensive, um, uh, as it were, piece of legislation, even in the United States, um, they aren't quite there yet. And when one thinks about last week, the largest U.S. public pension fund, CalPERS, reported a cyber attack, which affected 770,000 of their members due uh, to a global data breach. The reason being was the um, subcontracting of ICT services to a third-party provider. So we're reminded just how important this is in the European context uh, when we see uh, some of the, the magnitude of this piece of legislation. So quite clearly, a core piece of this legislation is incorporating the critical third-party uh, ICT providers. Now, critical, what does critical mean? We, we still have to define this. Um, this is one of the regulatory technical standards that's being developed as we speak by, by ESMA. But a preliminary definition of this would seem to be any third-party ICT provider that works with a single, and notably a single, global uh, bank um, uh, or a, a particularly large systemically important investment firm that, that provides services of an ICT nature across at least six EU member, member states. That it becomes a critical ICT third-party provider, which requires much more due diligence to be undertaken. This, by the way, also includes cloud services, which are, are a huge outsourced activity uh, in, in the case of banks and insurance companies. So this will, this will cover uh, a huge, um, uh, as were, avantage of uh, financial service uh, entities, ranging from banks that we've already mentioned, e-money and payment institutions, except payment institutions that are already exempted under the PSD version 2, and no doubt this will be carried forward into the Payment Service Directive version 3, which is being finalized. But it includes crypto asset service providers and issuers, CCPs, trading venues, data reporting services, trade repositories, AIFMDs, uh, management, uh, uh, US use of companies, insurers, intermediaries, credit rating agencies, and investment firms. So a huge uh, scope, nobody's left out. Um, what this requires of uh, financial institutions, as distinct from the third-party 
uh, as it were, outsourced providers, is that banks and insurers and pension funds will have to have well-documented ICT management frameworks, policies, procedures, protocols, which will be investigated and examined by national regulators. Indeed, clearly, it's the national competent regulators in each member state who will have the oversight, the primary oversight of the um, overseeing this uh, piece of legislation and its proper application. The other area is reporting on any major ICT-related incidents and immediately notifying the National Competent Authority, which hasn't always been the case in the past, reporting on any major um, uh, significant cyber threats, uh, also in, with an immediate effect to the National Competent Authorities, reporting on any major operational or securement, security payment-related incidents, with payments being a real focus of this piece of legislation, given the huge uh, magnitude of implications involved. It also introduces something very new. Uh, we have already have stress testing for something like 114 systemically important banks across Europe, including third country banks as well. But for uh, financial institutions that have a enormous foothold uh, in terms of ICT activities and rely notably on outsourced uh, uh, activities, there will be an imposed once a year uh, operational resilience testing uh, uh, apparatus, which will be imposed by under this piece of legislation and overseen by the national competent authorities. So this will look at issues like assessing for the preparedness, for handling ICT-related incidents, identify any weaknesses, deficiencies, gaps, in terms of the uh, digital operational resilience. And for those um, uh, financial institutions that have a magnitude of ICT activities, which would be defined under the regulatory technical standards, there would be a further every three year um, penetrating, uh, as it were, testing oper operation uh, required by these financial institutions. Um, as far as the third party uh, ICT uh, uh, members, they will also be subject to their own, uh, as it were, um, list of requirements vis-a-vis uh, -vis the outsourcing party, whether that be a bank, pension fund or insurer. And that means pre-outsourcing due diligence. To what extent is this third party entity reliable? Is it, uh, is it, does it suffer from concentration? Does it, is it the only uh, uh, third-party ICT provider? Is there a risk of no substitution should that particular uh, third-party ICT entity collapse uh, with huge implications going forward? Assessments uh, of the ICT third-party concentration risks. To what extent is this particular ICT third-party so prominent across the at least six markets that its collapse could be as important as a collapse of a major financial institution. Uh, disaster recovery plans, if any, uh, in, in terms of the third party. Governance arrangements, uh, is there a, a, a fit and proper uh, of senior management within this third party ICT firm that is robust, that's undertaken on an independent basis, and report, and do they report, and what means will they be uh, uh, using to report on any major ICT, uh, as it were, incidents? 
Now, the weak part, I think, of this particular piece of legislation, which again will come into place uh, in 2025, the 17th of January 2025, not 2026, is the supervisory uh, mechanism. And this foresees a, a sort of a mixed or uh, a mix of the ACES, so the EBA, ESMA, EOPA, depending on the financial institution, with powers to ask for information, conduct in on-site ins inspections, issue remedial recommendations, impose sanctions, but it has to be done in conjunction with the National Competent Authority of that financial institution where uh, the financial institution has its uh, holding uh, entity. So the NCA powers to oversee risks flowing from financial entities which are highly dependent on third country uh, uh, or third party uh, ICT providers is going to be a critical issue in terms of success going forward. Next slide, uh, please. Um, so we also have, uh, as I've said already, um, coming up a, a more uh, robust definition of what constitutes critical uh, uh, ICT TPPs, the number of the systematic character of the financial entities that rely on the provider and the degree of substitutability. In other words, to what extent are these particular third party entities uh, capable of being substituted uh, at short notice. Um, now, interestingly, this is where the third country uh, element comes in. Uh, there will be a total ban, but I mean a total ban on EU firms uh, who are not who will not be authorised uh, to provide ICT T uh, TPP services if uh, they are not established as an entity within one of the 27 new member states. So, in other words, any a third party um, ICT TPP based in some other part of the world outside of the European Union will not be uh, allowed to provide such services going forward. Um, the extensive nature and scope of this means that, you know, there will be a scramble to find uh, clearly uh, ICT TPPs that can service a broad range of financial activities uh, even at an outsourced nature, across a number of markets in Europe. Um, the scope, um, obviously, uh, also uh, covers um, uh, the range of uh, micro-enterprises, but at the last moment, this was reduced to uh, only uh, investment firms that have assets under management of less than $1.2 billion uh, euros, which means that essentially a lot of small to medium-sized investment firms, banks, insurers will be excluded from this particular onerous uh, requirement to apply the full uh, the full um, uh, application of, of DORA. And in terms of other uh, exemptions, interestingly, under the investment firms regulation. Exemptions will also be provided for client orders handled of, uh, of either uh, less than 100 million uh, euros per day of cash trades or 1 billion euros a day for derivatives. So some very, I think, extensive, helpful, constructive exemptions uh, going forward. As I've said already, all of this, um, we will need to see 
the actual evidence on the tangible regulatory technical standards covering ICT risk management, establishing robust rules on security policies, firm governance, uh, detection procedures. These will all have to be defined under Article 15. Under Article 18, classifying ICT-related incidents and cyber threats. Article 20, incident reporting. Under Article 26, the advanced digital operation resilience testing uh, apparatus and third-party risk management under Article 30. All these issues will have to be um, uh, provided for under regulatory technical standards going forward. Next slide, please. The other big issue, of course, is the markets in crypto assets. Uh, now, this, uh, again, is a game changer compared to other regions of the world uh, where it's a very fragmented uh, approach to regulating crypto asset providers, issuers, trading platforms. The EU has taken a very comprehensive, uh, leaving no stone unturned type of approach, which means it covers trading platforms, custodian wallet providers, exchanges, issuers, providers, etc. The key focus in Europe was quite visibly investor protection and financial stability. Uh, so in terms of the broader approach taken by uh, the EU, uh, Compared to other regions, um, everything that relates to crypto assets, trading advice, transmitting orders, custody, crypto to crypto uh, uh, type exchanges will be covered under this piece of legislation. It also imposes, interestingly, a liability for crypto asset providers in terms of custody losses. Should there be a cyber attack uh, on the digital wallets, uh, it's the crypto asset provider that assumes that responsibility. And also, there's a very robust anti-money laundering dimension built into this in extremists. In other words, any crypto asset um, transfer in excess of a thousand euros will be subject to increased due diligence in terms of the identification of the beneficiary and the issuer, all of which must be documented and provided as evidence to the national competent authority where that crypto asset provider uh, or, or issue is based. Sadly, there's no equivalency or mutual recognition associated with this. And indeed, one of the critical issues uh, is, in fact, the, the fact that you need, as a provider or issuer, to have a physical presence somewhere in the EU, uh, 27 uh, EU uh, member states. So uh, what we are seeing, uh, I think, a general uh, strategic autonomy type orthodoxy being imposed uh, across a range of, of activities. In other words, let's rely more on indigenous uh, or um, uh, established subsidiaries or branch-led uh, third country banks, insurance companies, investment firms, crypto asset exchanges, but there must be a physical legal presence to allow for these uh, activities. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, this uh, piece of legislation also comes with some interestingly uh, prudential rules. I've always said this is a bit like a mini capital requirements directive and regulation. It has things like governance arrangements, it has prudential rules, it has capital requirements, it has fit and proper uh, uh, assessments and due diligence to be undertaken, particularly vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the uh, providers. So for, for issuers, they will need to have uh, an own or at least maintain 
at least uh, a capital funds of 350,000 euros or 2% of their total reserves, whichever is largest. Significant users, um, issuers, which have yet to be defined under the regulatory technical standards, need to have at least a capital uh, uh, capitalization in excess of 1 billion uh, or recording 500,000 transactions per day. Uh, um, a maintenance of capital funds of an equal to at least 3% of reserve assets. Uh, so we're looking at some pretty uh, pretty robust pieces of, legis- of capital requirements here. And providers must also have initial capital reserves, security of the IT infrastructure under the DORA arrangements, solid corporate uh, governance structures, and suitability of management board. In other words, it's the CRR um, three piece of legislation in terms of its new revised harmonized fit and proper rules which will apply uh, equally uh, here as well. Now I should mention that this is a piece of legislation which yes helps to facilitate uh, the creation and uh, growth of crypto asset um, activities per se with some very uh, robust uh, safeguards. However, it is largely uh, focused on let's say large, let's say medium to large size crypto asset players. It really was not designed for small startup or small to medium sized crypto asset companies. And the reason for this is the very costly and complex um, uh, compliance arrangements, for instance, under the uh, issuer uh, piece of legislation, uh, they have to apply for a white paper for every new admission 20 days ahead of the admission to the national regulator. And for the, um, uh, for the providers, they need to also provide a sort of prospectus to, for approval by the NCAs on a range of activities that they undertake, whether it be custody, brokerage, trading, or investment advice. Now, the point I'm trying to make here uh, is that the white paper for issuers is a huge cost, anything between $4,500 and $87,000, according to the European Commission's own studies into this uh, some uh, two years ago. Ongoing compliance costs are anything up to globally up to $28 uh, million uh, US dollars for the European Union as a whole. And one-off compliance charges for providers can any per provider can be anything between 3.2 and 19 million uh, US dollars. Again, I'm quoting from the compliance uh, course as undertaken by the European Commission some two years ago. So quite visibly, uh, this is really designed for the large players. The other um, question I would mention, not such good news, is the Basel Committee has been looking at capital charges applicable to crypto asset uh, players, particularly banks who uh, indulge in this. And they're looking at a proposal of something like 1,250%, risk weight applied to long and short positions under the forthcoming uh, Basel uh, uh, regime. Uh, which is subject to consultation uh, as we as we speak. Now, it has to be said that at the moment, many banks are, are, have very limited exposure to crypto assets. According to uh, the Basel Committee, the Bank of International Settlements, uh, something like uh, investment banks alone, 
limit their exposure to crypto assets of between 0.1 and 1.6% of core tier one capital. But that could expand uh, should there be relief given uh, under the forthcoming Basel uh, deliberations, which are nearing the rent. Uh, next uh, slide, please. And then I think I really will have to wind down. But this is another interesting, again, game-changing uh, issue. It relates to the creation um, after years of frustrating uh, experience with relying on national competence authorities to police increasingly complex cross-border financial transactions that had dangerous uh, money laundering uh, implications. Just to put this in the context, in Europe alone, according to Europol, as much as 0.7 to 1.28% of the European Union's annual GDP is, quote, detected as being involved in suspect financial activities such as money laundering connected to corruption, arms trafficking, uh, humans trafficking, drugs dealing, tax evasion, fraud, terrorist financing, and other illicit activities which affect citizens in their daily lives, end of quote. So that puts it in context. Clearly, by 2025, we will have a new independent, standalone, high-level EU AML authority. We haven't determined quite yet where it's going to be based, but its main purpose will be to supervise directly 40-plus financial institutions of a particularly high-profile risk nature, typically financial institutions that have cross-border activities, that have had issues with the regulators at national or pan-European level in the past in terms of money laundering. Uh, and uh, also it will include at the very least at least one major financial institution per each 27 EU member state. So it could be a bank, it could be an insurer, uh, it could be an investment firm uh, going forward. With the, uh, the discretion uh, provided for uh, this authority under the regulation, that's a regulation, not a directive, so it will have to be applicable automatically and systematically across all of the 27 EU member states at the same time. Uh, but it, what it will mean is the discretion, uh, a bit like the ECB, SSM has the uh, 114 banks, 40 plus financial institutions directly supervised and on all aspects of compliance vis-a-vis -vis the six, seven anti-money laundering directives uh, up to date. Uh, now, the scope is huge. Not surprisingly, we find crypto asset um, uh, providers in here, as I've already mentioned, credit institutions, banks, uh, bureau de change, uh, investment uh, firms, uh, use of firms, uh, management uh, companies of use of firms as well, credit providers other than banks, e-money institutions, payment service providers, life insurance uh, undertakings uh, and intermediaries, and as I've said already, crypto asset providers. Um, now, as far as um, third countries are concerned, there is a separate chapter in this regulation, which indeed does explicitly recognize uh, the need to protect uh, Europe, the European Union, uh, and its financial stability um, by identifying at a very early stage those financial institutions with a prominent presence operationally across the 27 EU member states who could 
potentially, I say potentially pose a risk to the financial stability uh, in the EU. Now, this would probably consist of um, a memorandum of understanding, a separate one, I might add, between the UK and the EU, the US and the EU, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, and other major financial uh, regions and hubs across the road uh, to ensure that the European Union has some degree of oversight, access to information about these financial institutions, their activities, transactions, uh, as they relate to the uh, European Union going forward. So it would be high-risk, cross-border uh, financial institutions that would be, uh, I think, um, largely focused on. The other important thing, interestingly, is the, and I'm just about to stop now, one last word, if I may just say, that interestingly, and somewhat controversially, I would say, uh, the um, national competent authorities and the EBA uh, will find their role significantly diminished as a result of the creation of this new EU AML uh, authority. Um, the uh, entire oversight at a direct institution-by-institution institution level will be undertaken by this authority. On that note, let me hand back to you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you very much for that in-depth presentation, David. We've got some great questions um, that I'm certainly keen to hear the answer. Um, firstly, Martin Watkins, you mentioned CSDs and the extensive scope of DORA. Are they covered? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first part of the question. Uh, CD, CSDs, are they covered um, in DORA? Um, they yes, they are. They are covered, but again, it depends on the uh, the definition, the magnitude of transactions. All of that has to be defined uh, in the forthcoming regulatory technical standards. There are something like seven of them, one of which will provide for definitions under that under that chapter. Okay. Uh, Yusuf Neem has said, uh, recently the EU passed the AI Act. How do you foresee this impacting the financial services industry's adoption and continuing use of AI? Yeah, very important question. Um, uh, huge implications. I mean, this was not primarily designed, the AI Act, uh, specifically for financial services. It was, it's much more of a global, universal application of AI, but quite visibly, probably the one of the most important um, problematic areas, in my view, is that the financial institution that develops an AI application uh, for outsourcing or delegation to third parties, intermediaries, brokers, dealers, anywhere in the financial services, as it were, ecosystem, the financial institution uh, at the instigation of this remains responsible for its final use or misuse by the rest of the ecosystem. That, that's a huge implication, which should mean that many financial institutions should be very carefully undertaking due diligence of any AI application they, they develop in-house for use by third parties, or indeed by clients, for that matter, because uh, they will remain responsible and can be, it's a sanctionable uh, offence if uh, there is misuse of the AI application. 
Michael Ng has asked, will there be an equivalence regime for non-EU ICT TPPs, such as those in the UK, to service EU investment firms, or is that being ruled out of scope? Well, there's no equivalency arrangements foreseen under DORA. And indeed, as I said earlier, um, any uh, any non-EU third-party uh, ICT provider, unless they have a, a a judicial presence or they have a physical presence in one of the EU member states, either as a, a local agent or a subsidiary uh, or a branch, they will not be able to provide, um, continue to provide uh, services of that nature to, particularly to the major financial institutions, uh, the global um, systemically important banks uh, and systemically important um uh, investment firms as well. So, no, that's not foreseen clearly. It's a bit like the, the MICA issue as well. You need to have uh, a presence in one of the 27 new member states. Now, that, of course, could evolve, but right now uh, there is a very clear uh, orthodoxy running through the EU in terms of uh, uh, strategic autonomy, uh, the recognition that Europe has to undertake a much more assertive role in managing, regulating uh, its own um, financial institutions. This is not just financial institutions. It covers a range of areas from telecoms to health, uh, uh, drugs, uh, pharmaceutical products, etc. So it's, it's, it's a general move towards uh, strategic autonomy uh, at the EU level. Uh, Peter Hall has said major US law firms hold written confidential British ministerial assurances that money laundering conducted by US lawyers through British offshore centres will be immune from British AML processes for the purposes of conversion into euros. Are there assurances that this will be voided by EU 2025 oversight of British AML supervision? Premature. Uh, this separate chapter on third country high risk um, high risk financial institutions uh, in third countries has yet to be um, further developed uh, and undertaken by the by the ASAs, and all of these issues will be part of that um, uh, part of the regulatory technical standards uh, going forward. Presumably, predictably, you know, it could end up being a memorandum of understanding uh, between various non-EU uh, jurisdictions with regards to uh, unfettered access by EU regulators, notably by this new EU AML authority uh, to conduct, for instance, on-site inspections. Now, will this uh, be acceptable? Will this materialise? It's far too early to, to determine at this stage. Uh, Ravi has asked if there's any update on Russian sanctions. Uh, a, a week doesn't go by without the EU announcing yet further sanctions on financial institutions, third-party institutions that have um, uh, indelible contacts and transactions with uh, Russian uh, industry or financial services, or and or uh, individual um, Russian um, uh, uh, personalities, 
uh, with activities um, running through uh, the EU, very similar to the US. So yes, there's been a, a general, um, and I, I have to say, uh, a massively consensual approach uh, at the council, notably by the council, which represents the member states, in terms of pursuing sanctions against the Federation of Russia uh, by closing down major sources of funding uh, to Russia. There's the, one, the only area that has escaped uh, this is, is certain payment systems because they include huge implications for financial institutions and, and other industries in, in mainland Europe. But there are very few exceptions. And I think what we've just seen recently further reinforcing of these sanctions against Russia, against the Russian Federation, because of the geopolitical events that uh, have occurred in the last year. And Ashley Winton has asked if Mecca has any extraterritorial effects. Will it affect businesses in the UK? Sorry, I didn't hear the first part. Will what? Uh, Mecca have any extraterritorial oh. effects? So will it affect businesses in the UK? Um, well, yes, by virtue that the United Kingdom is now no longer a member of the EU, um, any MICA provider issuer needs, to, again, to register um, its, its services in one of the 27 new member states, which would then allow the issuer provider or indeed exchange to have access to the other 27 new member states. So that potentially could be via an existing bank or financial institution with which it has um, uh, a, a legal agreement uh, or has a partnership, uh, not just a memorandum of understanding, but there is a need for, and this was, was also one of the uh, almost uh, um, uh, key concerns of the ECB earlier this year when it warned third country banks and um, uh, crypto asset providers and issuers, they needed to have a physical presence and not just a brass plate uh, or, or a, sh a shadow sort of type of activity, uh, which allowed them to transact uh, business as usual. Now, there is need for a physical presence. There is need for licensing, uh, authorization, uh, of course, due diligence as foreseen under, under MICA. So this is, again, a general shift towards ensuring consistency in terms of the uh, crypto asset players and actors that operate uh, across the 27 new member states. Okay. Um, one quick last question from me. Um, with regard to the new AML authority, what are the implications, if any, for the UK being a non-EU member state? Yeah, I guess I said earlier, this is a separate chapter under the um, EU AML Authority regulation. It comes into place 2025. Um, it would stop operationally 2026. It would probably be beyond 2026 when we see some movement by this authority to at least open up um, uh, a dialogue, uh, perhaps separately to the memorandum of understanding uh, that I just mentioned earlier uh, in relation to uh, the UK uh, 
uh, exit from the from the EU. That's a separate, um, as it were, uh, uh, activity. But this is a separate memorandum of understanding between the new authority, Yemen Authority, and the UK, US, and other financial hubs across the world to allow for some degree of access by the authority on-site inspections potentially, um, but also making sure that the financial institutions have robust risk due diligence assessments undertaken vis-a-vis those activities that are conducted in the in the EU. So yes, there are going to be some huge implications. I mean, obviously the wording uh, in the chapter is is not terribly um, flattering. You know, identification of high risk uh, financial institutions uh, that needs to be clearly defined. We're all hoping. Uh, praying that this would be a collegial approach uh, now that we've signed the Amendment of Understanding uh, in relation to the financial services, that we will have a, a similar piece of goodwill on both sides to be able to work out a reasonable arrangement for exchange of information uh, between both parts, the EU, uh, the UK, the US, Singapore, Hong Kong, and other major financial hubs going forward. But what be, be under no illusion, this is going to change radically the way uh, a compliance oversight has been conducted up to now by the EPA and by national competent authorities. Visibly, those two uh, particular aspects are now going to be shifted massively into the hands of the new EU AML authority, which will have um, you know, uh, massive discretionary powers that didn't exist before. Well, thank you very much, David. It was lovely to catch up and pick your brains once again. Um, as usual, you've provided a thorough and insightful presentation. And also, I must thank our wonderful sponsors for making these webinars possible and to our audience for your time and worthwhile contributions today. Don't forget to check out the forthcoming events page on our website. We've got lots more diverse content coming up for you, including what we should teach our children about money and economic um, lessons from COVID all happening next week. Thank you very much, everyone. Goodbye.